Hello readers, Stuart Ritchie is a faculty member at the Social Genetic and Developmental Psychiatry Center at King's College London and author of Science Fictions, How Fraud, Bias, Negligence, and Hype Undermine the Search for the Truth. Stuart, thank you for the time today. Before we start to detail some of the problems facing science here in 2020, in its perfect form, what is the process of creating and publishing a scientific research paper? Well, the peer review system that we have in science is supposed to be the gatekeeper for scientific research. It's supposed to improve scientific research. It's supposed to weed out all the papers that have problems, the papers that have faulty statistics or faulty experimental designs or whatever it happens to be. And so the idea is that you do your experiment and it's based on previous theory. You're standing on the shoulders of giants. It's based on previous experiments that are all making a solid foundation for your research. You write your research up, you send it off to peer-reviewed journal, and the editor of the journal will decide whether your paper is worth reviewing or not. And then if they do decide that, then it'll get sent off to some peer reviewers who are supposed to provide the scrutiny. And of course, in many cases, the system works very well. And peer review actually works very well as a kind of bulwark against fraud and negligence and all the problems I talk about in the book. But as I say in the book, the peer review system clearly can't be working correctly, because we have so many papers published in peer review journals in these places that are supposed to be containing only the best research that can't be replicated when independent scientists go and try and replicate the same findings, go and try and do the experiment again and get the same results. And also that turn out to be full of errors and in some cases even outright fraud. We'll get more into replication in just a second, but you do point out that the submission process assumes that the researcher, journal editor, and reviewing peers operate in a trustworthy manner. There are even some unwritten rules for this process to ensure that honesty, like the Mertonian norms. What are the Mertonian norms and how well is this adhered to? Well, these are four ideas that were come up with in the 1940s by the sociologist Robert Merton. There's debate over whether he was describing how he viewed science or giving an aspirational idea. So there are these four ideas. The first one is universalism, which is that you should judge a scientific finding on its merits, essentially, and not on the characteristics of the people who came up with it. So their race and gender and social class and the university they came from and the country they come from and all that sort of stuff. That doesn't matter as long as you judge their idea on its merits. And so basically, scientific knowledge is scientific knowledge as long as it's kind of robustly arrived upon. Second one is disinterestedness. So the idea there is that you shouldn't have a, you know, the idea of a pet theory kind of goes against the idea of disinterestedness. You shouldn't have a pet theory. You should just be disinterested. You should be pursuing your scientific research without bias in one direction or another. So your own desires shouldn't come into it. The third one is, well, Merton called it communism, but it's changed to communality over the years (laughs) because communism, there's already something that's called that. So people got a bit confused (laughs) by that. But um, communality is the idea that we should share scientific findings amongst the scientific community. So the idea of publishing your findings in the peer-reviewed journal is part of that to show other scientists what you've done. And also coming into that comes ideas of if another scientist comes along and asks you questions about your research, you should show them your data. You should be honest about what you've done. And the final Mertonian norm is that organized skepticism, which is this constant process of questioning and checking out other people's results, not taking anyone's word for it, and just being skeptical all the time of every scientific result that someone claims is true. And again, the actual process of peer review 
is part of that norm of organized skepticism. So it's just a constant march of just constantly assessing each other's claims, reviewing each other's claims. How well is it adhered to? Well, in the book, I discuss many instances of where, for instance, that organized skepticism process can't have worked properly because articles are getting through into the journals that are meant to be part of the scientific record that are actually not an accurate description of what was done in the experiment and make really quite ridiculous claims that nobody has been skeptical enough of during the scientific process. I also discuss instances where scientists fail to share their data with each other and in fact hide what they've done, write their research papers up in ways that don't accurately reflect what they did in the experiment. So that kind of goes against this norm of communality. And of course, I talk about instances of bias, which goes against the idea of the norm of disinterestedness, where scientists are biased in favor of finding positive results, biased in favor of their own theories, biased in favor of sometimes their own political ideas. So these are all ways in which the Mertonian norms and their great ideas, as aspirational as they are, do sometimes get violated in the scientific process. We're certainly going to dig into some of those problems now. I wanted to try and provide our listeners with a little bit of context before we really start digging deep into some of these problems. We're going to start with replication. Daniel Kahneman's book, Thinking Fast and Slow, is one of the most popular psychology books of the last 10 years, revered by decision makers in all walks of life, including sports. But why is the book also a good example of the replication crisis plaguing scientific research? Yeah, it's a great book, and I really enjoyed reading it when it first came out in, I think, 2011. Great book, well-written. Daniel Kahneman is a towering figure in the field, but even Daniel Kahneman had some serious oversights in that book. So he cited quite a lot of papers, quite a lot of studies, which were, to be fair to him, published in peer-reviewed psychology journals, which have really not stood up. And in fact, if you looked at those papers at the time, you would have had some reasons to doubt that they would have stood up in terms of you know them being looked at again in future. So particularly, these were papers on the idea of behavioral priming. So the idea that you can put unconscious signals, primes in people's environment, verbal primes that prime an idea in their heads, and then they will change their behavior on the basis of that. So there are various versions of this, some of which are really ridiculous and some of them seem more plausible than others. One of the ones I talk about in the book is there was a famous study on money priming, which is where you sit down at a desk and you're doing some kind of task, which it doesn't really matter what the task is, it's a distractor task. But half of the participants in the experiment had a screen on the desk, which had a screen saver, which had money, like banknotes floating around on it. And half of the participants just had some random pictures on the screensaver. And this money prime in half the participants, so they had been primed with the idea of money because there was these pictures in their environment of money, made them act more selfishly in a subsequent interaction, made them more self-centered. They actually had them put a chair down to talk to someone and they kept the chair further apart and stuff. So they were meant to be more individualist. And you have these kind of ideas and there's all sorts of other ridiculous versions of this idea of priming. Anyway, Daniel Kahneman doesn't just talk about this skeptically in his book, but he says, you have no choice but to believe that these findings are true. And they're not just true of anyone, they're true of you. So he says that in Thinking Fast and Slow. And of course, that was an absurd thing to say because you do have a choice in that you can go and address the science. You can go and look at the details of these papers, see if they add up. And it turns out in a lot of these papers, the results actually were very weak. If you look at the papers themselves, if you look at the way they were written up, and then they failed to replicate when other scientists came along to check them. And so Daniel Kahneman, to be fair to him, in subsequent years has come out and said, look, I made a mistake there. I shouldn't have cited those papers so authoritatively and made it seem like they were completely unassailable when in fact they have just been assailed you know, by all these other research. So I think it's a really nice example of where 
even very authoritative people and people who you should trust, because I think most of the stuff Daniel Kahneman talks about is very trustworthy and he's a great researcher. Even there, he made the mistake of relying on these peer-reviewed studies when, in fact, they shouldn't have been relied on in the first place. You also do a great job of pointing out how the Stanford prison experiment is a victim of this idea of priming. And although this book mostly focuses on psychological studies, replication is a problem across numerous fields, Stuart. One of the toughest to swallow replication failures noted in your book had to do with cancer researchers trying to test 51 important preclinical cancer studies in independent labs. What happened? Yeah, this was a the cancer research reproducibility project. And what they tried to do was take these important papers, and they were on quite a variety of different topics, but they were all on the topic of cancer research. So it was like enzyme research. They were all preclinical, so it wasn't treatments for patients. As you say, it's preclinical, so it's lab research on cells in a dish or the chemistry of cancer and tumors and so on. So it wasn't medical trials, but it was really important research in building up our understanding of how to treat cancer, which of course is a majorly important scientific endeavor. And what they found when they took all these studies, before they even got to the point of trying to replicate the experiment, doing the experiment again and checking whether you get the same results, they couldn't even begin to do that because they couldn't actually work out from the papers. And again, these are published peer-reviewed papers, they couldn't work out what the original scientists had done. Those original scientists had not provided enough details about their experiment. And that was in every single one of the cases that they tried to replicate in every single one of the studies. So they had this big, long process of having to email the original authors back and forth. And the original authors are like emailing their old researcher who used to work in their lab and saying, do you remember how we did this? Do you have your lab notes? No, sorry, I lost the notes somewhere along the way when I moved universities. This is not how it should be. Scientific papers should give adequate information for other researchers to come along and check whether the study is correct or not. And if you don't do that, if you don't provide the full recipe for what you've done, then I don't think you can be expected to have anyone paying attention to your research, right? Because why would anyone want to base their next study on something that they can't be sure is correct? And so this revealed kind of inadvertently that it's not just that some findings can't be replicated. And by the way, once they worked out, in some cases, they had to cut down the number of studies. They only eventually ended up, I think, replicating about 18 of the studies or trying to replicate about 18 of them. And I think somewhere about half of those turned out not to be replicable. So mm. I think this raises yet a further issue, which is that you can't even begin to replicate a lot of these studies. And this is, again, something which is found in lots of different areas, not just in cancer research, but across science, is that people aren't providing, they're not doing that whole thing about communality about providing enough details for someone to come along and try your study again. Fraud is another issue plaguing scientific research, whether it's something like image duplication or falsified data. How prevalent is scientific fraud? Well, the best numbers we have right now are from a review study of lots of surveys that have been done on scientists across lots of different countries. And the answer to the question, have you ever committed fraud? I think 1.88% of scientists, so about 2% of scientists say, yes, you know, I've committed misconduct at some point. I've done something which I would now consider to be misconduct. And I think that's quite terrifying, even though it's a small number. That's a lot of scientists who would claim that. And I find that really scary. If you ask them the question, do you know any other scientists who have committed fraud? About 14% say yes to that. And, you know, you can make arguments that maybe they're being a bit paranoid or they're trying to smear their competitors in some way or you know you can make kind of arguments that maybe it's not as high as 14 percent but that's still a terrifying number that 14 percent of scientists think that 
So there's clearly a perception there's a lot of misconduct happening in the field, as you say, in terms of falsifying the data or getting Photoshop and altering the pictures from your microscope image of your cells or whatever it is that you're looking at. There's loads of examples of papers where the images have been altered, doctored, photoshopped in some way. And again, this is not science. This is misconduct. Is China more guilty of scientific fraud than any country on the planet? And if so, why? Well, if you ask Chinese researchers, again, there's another survey where you ask just specifically research in China. Again, I don't have the numbers directly in front of me, but some very, very large portion of them. I think the number is something like they thought that about 40% of the research published by other Chinese scientists had misconduct involved in it in some way. And I think something like 70% of the Chinese scientists surveyed in this study said that they thought the authorities in China just didn't care about scientific misconduct. And so there's reasons to believe that something, you know, maybe is particularly bad there. I have a quotation from Stephen Novella, who's a writer and a clinician, who says maybe the totalitarian system is not one under which science, which is, you know, as we've talked about, supposed to be open and transparent. It's not really one under which science can really flourish. And the incentive system can go very, very, very wrong under circumstances like that, which might explain some of it. But it's hard to know. It's hard to put a number on it. Certainly, if you ask Chinese scientists, there's a lot of red flags go up. What is scientific bias? And is this problem as simple as humans having a hard time admitting that they're wrong? I think that covers quite a lot of it. Um, Bias is what I go on to in the book after I talk about fraud, because I say, you know, fraud happens. A lot of scientists do it. A lot more scientists seem to commit fraud than we would hope. But bias is something which is more prevalent, more insidious, because I think scientists who are not the kind of real extreme end of the distribution, they still engage in it and they don't even realize it can be completely unconscious. Bias can come in at various different stages, various different parts of the scientific analysis. So one of the original biases that people talked about is publication bias in that the studies that you see published in the literature are more likely to be of a certain kind. And that certain kind is studies with positive, exciting results. As you just said, scientists have a hard time coping with the fact that sometimes their experiments don't work. Sometimes they don't find the results that they expected to find. And they will often not even bother sending those papers to the journal to be published in the first place when they didn't find the result that they wanted. Or they just find null, kind of flat results. Maybe the drug they were testing didn't work or whatever they were looking at. Part of this comes from the journals too. The journals are more interested in exciting, flashy, positive findings. It's very human. We want to make a difference. We want to help. We want to make progress on whatever scientific question we're looking at. And it seems to us that making progress involves publishing new, exciting findings. When actually, making progress involves just discovering things that are accurate and correct, right? So even if you don't find that your drug works, that's still useful information. You should still be publishing that. But because of publication bias, it's much less likely that those negative null findings will get published. So that's one type of bias. When they're doing the statistical analysis, scientists can also commit various biases in terms of, you know, they have a lot of flexibility in the way that they analyze the data. It's very rare for scientists to plan out from the very beginning what the statistical analysis they're going to do is. And that means that when they're doing the statistical analysis, they can kind of say to themselves, well, what would these results look like if we just dropped out a couple of participants here? Or what would these results look like if we corrected for how tall the participants were, or we corrected for their sex, or something like that. And we didn't plan to do that, but we just think it would be interesting to try it. And then if after doing that, after making that change to the statistical analysis, that kind of ad hoc change, it turns out that we get a more exciting 
more statistically significant results, then we're more likely to just stop there and send that one off for publication. So the bias can creep in in the statistics. I also talk about more higher level biases where people are biased towards finding results that fit with their favored theory, their favorite interpretation. I talk about some Alzheimer's research that might have been subject to that. And some political biases too. So there's certain questions might not be asked because they're less politically salient. And scientists rarely admit their political views. It's not like they write a conflict of interest section saying I'm a conservative or I'm a liberal, whatever it happens to be. They do write conflict of interest sections about money. And that's quite right in my view if you're being paid by a pharmaceutical company or you know for consulting for some industry and you, you're getting paid lots of money that should be on the record but the discussion i have in my book is you know to what extent should scientists also be admitting these other biases that they have ideological political if you're a nutritional researcher you do research on diet and you yourself are following one particular diet doesn't that mean that you are biased in favor of that and you should declare that to everyone? So there's an interesting discussion to be had there over the various different kinds of bias and the extent to which scientists should be admitting to them. Anybody who reads about scientific research, either the research itself or maybe an article on that research, will come across a term known as statistical significance. What is statistically significant and what is its inherent flaw? This is a test that the majority, I would say, of scientists use to distinguish whether their results are basically interesting or if maybe they're due to chance, right? So what you calculate is p-value, which is part of a statistical test. So you calculate a p-value and the p-value tells you in a world where your hypothesis is not true, so that's what the scientists call the null hypothesis. So if the null hypothesis is true and there's just nothing going on, your drug doesn't work, the little part of the brain you're interested in isn't related to the thing you're focused on, whatever result you're looking for, say that isn't true, how likely is it that you would have found the results that you found, right? That's what the p-value tells you. It's slightly more complicated than that, but that's a good definition of it. So what you want is a really low p-value. You want a p-value that's very low because that says that if there was just nothing going on, there's a very low chance that you would get data that looks like your data. So your data might be somewhat special in some way. And um, back in the 1920s, I think, it was suggested that maybe scientists should be interested in you know, setting a threshold under which the p-value would be considered, and this is where the term comes in, significant, statistically significant. And the threshold that was suggested by Ronald Fisher, the statistician, was 5%. So if you get a p-value less than 0.05, if the null hypothesis was true, your result would only happen 5% or less of the time. Imagine a situation where you run the same experiment infinite times, only 5% or less of those times would you find your results. So that's considered rare enough to be interesting and thus probably not just due to random chance. And so that's how scientists have been thinking about it. And even though Fisher suggested maybe scientists should change the p-value threshold sometimes and take into account the context of the research they're doing, people have basically just stuck with this 5% threshold. And so you have this very simplified, dumbed-down situation now in science where a result that has a p-value of less than 0.05 is considered to be true in some sense. And a result that has a p-value of greater than 0.05 is considered to be untrue in some sense. It's a completely arbitrary distinction. It's a bit strange to think that a result that has a p-value of 0.049 is somehow categorically different <laughs> from a result that has a p-value of 0.051, you know, so just on the borderline. But that unfortunately is the way scientists think about things. They go through all their results tables trying to find p-values less than 0.05, and they're the ones that are statistically significant and publishable. And you can see how this would 
would produce a bias or produce an incentive to maybe just fiddle the figures a little bit so that your result gets below that arbitrary threshold of 0.05. And it turns out that if you do enough statistical tests, if you just keep testing different variations of your data, dropping out the odd participant here, changing the definitions there, controlling for different variables or whatever it happens to be, if you run enough of them, you will eventually get a p-value that gets below that sacred 0.05 threshold and you can publish it. So there's a big incentive there in just that dichotomy that we make between the true and false results on the basis of the p-value that pushes scientists towards a statistical bias. In covering the subject of negligence, you talk about two different types of scientific negligence. I'm curious, though, are numerical errors in scientific papers common? That's certainly a type of negligence, getting numbers wrong. Just how frequent is that in scientific research? Again, like fraud, it's depressingly common. It's not as rare as fraud. It's much more common than that. But it's still the sort of thing you would hope scientists would not do, i.e. make a big typo in their experiment that, at least in some cases, might change the results in a really important way. So um, lots of typos are inconsequential. They're just mistakes that don't actually make a big difference. But um, there was an algorithm designed by some Dutch researchers. It's called StatCheck. And just mentioned p-values. It actually checks the p-values in statistical results of papers. So you can actually feed it a PDF. You can send the PDF of the paper to StatCheck. And it comes back and says, yeah, all these p-values look to be consistent. I say in the book, it's a bit like Pythagoras' law, where you can always work out the length of one side of the triangle if you know the other two. It's the same with statistics. If you've got a couple of numbers, Numbers, then you can always work out what the p-value will be. And so if those two numbers and the p-value don't sit with each other, they're inconsistent, then something's gone wrong. And somewhere approaching half of psychology papers that were checked by this algorithm had this problem and a smaller proportion, but still quite scary, you know, somewhere, again, I don't have the numbers right in front of me, but a substantial percentage of those mistakes might have actually flipped the results of the paper entirely. So they said that the results were significant and in fact they weren't, for instance. And so that's a massively common thing and it comes about because scientists are human beings. Sometimes they take their eye off the ball. Sometimes they've got their statistical analysis on their computer and then they've got their word processing program that they're using to write their paper. And literally when they copy and paste things from one to the other, they can make mistakes, they can not copy the correct thing or make various errors with that. So that just comes in quite a lot. And these are just unforced, negligent errors that seep into the scientific literature. And I talk about the very famous case of the Excel typo in the economics paper that made it look as if the results about the debt-to-GDP ratio was really clear and that once you get above a debt-to-GDP ratio of 90%, that your economy starts shrinking and loads of politicians use this as a policy document. And it turned out that it was a typo in the Excel sheet and it actually missed out lots of countries. And once you corrected it, the result was nowhere near as clear. On the subject of hype, correlation versus causation is one of the most well-known concepts of research. While I expect some rando on Twitter not to grasp that concept, (laughs) it's a bit of a problem in scientific studies too, huh? Yeah, absolutely. This is probably the most common complaint that I have when I'm peer-reviewing people's studies is that they write up their papers. So say you've got a correlational data set. You've had people fill in questionnaires about their dietary habits or they've maybe done some personality tests and you're using that to predict their job performance or something like that, a correlational study. So not one where you've gone in and done an experiment, you know, randomized people to different groups, just one where you've collected data. You can't write that up as if it's causal, right? You can't write that up. Say you find a correlation between, I don't know, alcohol and heart disease. You can't write that up and say alcohol causes heart disease because you haven't actually manipulated anything. You haven't actually done an experiment. You've just found that there's a correlation. 
But scientists write up their papers as if that is the case. A great deal of the time, and what I talk about in the chapter on hype in the book is that they translate those correlation causation errors where they're basically it's wishful thinking, right? They wanted that to be a causal finding and they in their minds are interpreting that as a causal finding, even though the data just can't support that. That's just not the sort of study you should do if you want to make a causal conclusion. They actually translate that into press releases as well. So that's one of the kind of little known things that I talk about in the book is the scientists themselves often write the press releases for their articles. So it's not just a matter of PR agents or you know press officers at universities writing these press releases to hype up the studies that their universities have done. It's the scientists themselves. And there's been research on this that a large proportion of press releases make the error, the correlation causation error. So write about research as if it was causal when actually it was correlational. And then that translates out into the real world as well, into media articles which the general public are reading. So scientists can basically spin their results from correlational to causal, that gets taken out into press releases, that gets fed back to the public, and the public are completely misled about the sort of research that was done. And actually, this doesn't come from the media reporting fake news or anything like that. Often it ultimately comes from the scientists themselves, which is a real dereliction of duty when you're supposed to be, you know, as you say, scientists are supposed to know better than making these kind of mistakes. And the problem that you speak of there, I, I don't know if it was you that gave it this label, but it's a brilliant label. Churnalism is what it's called when you're mm. basically copying, pasting a press release and turning it into a news article. Yeah, that's not my term. I think that term was invented by the Guardian journalist Nick Davis. I'm not sure if it originated with him, but that was where I first read it in his book. He had a book called Flat Earth News a few years ago, and that was where that came from. But yeah, you'll very often read an article on some news website and think, hmm, this is written up in a very positive way about the study, almost <laughs> as if it's emphasizing how cool the study was and how great the scientists were. And then you actually can copy and paste one of the paragraphs and put it into Google and you find that it's exactly the same as what was written in the press release. Journalists are very time pressed. They will often you know, repeat what the scientists have said to some extent because they trust the scientists, right? They trust yeah. that the scientists are not going to say stuff that's incorrect, but the scientists unfortunately are. And the scientists themselves are ultimately the guilty ones because they should never have written this stuff up in this ridiculous way. But it goes back to bias, right? The scientists are writing what they hope to be true. They hope to have made a big breakthrough. They hope to have made a big impact on the world or made progress in understanding cancer or human psychology or particle physics, whatever it happens to be. They want that to have happened. And so they let that through. And of course, with press releases, you know, I've talked about how peer review doesn't often work, but the press releases, there's no review at all. So you can basically write whatever you want and no one's going to call you on it unless this kind of slightly newer community of people on social media kind of look up the press release and say, well, actually, no, that doesn't make sense. So flimsy research that finds its way into a news story is one example of hype. Another is flimsy research that's turned into a book. And you cite a book that I really enjoyed as an example of this, Matthew Walker's Why We Sleep. Why is that? There was a really great critique of that book by the researcher Alexi Guzzi on his blog, where he went through just the first chapter of that book and found lots and lots of errors and misinterpretations, I would say, of the data. So one of them actually is what we've just been talking about, which is the correlational causal thing, where a couple of points, Walker takes correlational studies, finding a correlation between sleep length and health outcomes, wherever they are, you know, so I can't remember the exact one I mentioned in the book, but there's one about cancer, there's one about the immune system, there's one about death and injury. And he writes them up as if they are causal, as if more sleep causes you to do this. And that might be true. That might actually be the case, that more sleep causes you to be healthier, right? 
And I actually think that sounds quite plausible. But you can't actually make that inference from the studies that he cited. And then slightly more seriously, I think there's another example where a graph of sleep and injury. So the idea is how likely are you to be injured at certain levels of sleep? So if you get six hours of sleep, how likely are you to be injured versus seven, eight, nine hours of sleep? And that's what's shown in the book. There's a graph showing that basically the more sleep you get, the less likely you are to be injured at work or in your daily life. The problem is that if you look at the original paper that that comes from, five hours of sleep is included in the graph. It's been removed from the graph when it gets into Walker's book. And five hours of sleep actually makes it seem like you're less likely to get injured than if you get six. So in that case, it's actually a it's an example of getting less sleep is beneficial, or at least that's one way you could read that graph. But he's basically simplified the story to the point of missing out a major element of that. That's really worrying, I think. And I think it tells you quite a lot about the incentives for scientists who are writing popular books, which is to really simplify things down, dumb things down to a point where it's not actually clear if that's really reflecting accurately the truth of the matter. And so I found that quite disturbing when I saw that that line from the graph, that that bar from the bar chart had been excised from it. And I think we all should be because that book sold enormous numbers of copies. And I'm not for a second saying that sleep isn't important or I'm not even saying that the book is mostly wrong. I think probably the idea that we should sleep more seems very plausible that it's true. But that doesn't mean that you can misinterpret research and be really sloppy with the facts. Stuart, you do such a great job of detailing the problems that are facing scientific research across all sorts of different fields. Are meta-analyses immune to many of your criticisms? And if not, what is the difference between a good or bad meta-analysis? It's a good question. So meta-analysis is where you're putting together lots of different studies on a particular question and trying to draw a kind of uh, overall conclusion, like work out what the average effects of a drug is across all the different trials that have been done on that drug for one particular outcome. You can see why that would be beneficial because it usually has a much larger sample size because you're putting together lots and lots of studies. You can look at how the effect varies across the different studies and across different circumstances that those studies were done in. So you can maybe check whether the effect is different in one country versus another or one age of participant versus is another whatever you're looking at whatever you're interested in the problem is the principle that we often hear in discussions of computer science but also elsewhere the problem is the issue of garbage in garbage out which is if you put in bad studies into your meta-analysis studies which are biased which don't report their findings accurately that are sometimes even fraudulent the results of your meta-analysis are not going to be reliable so i tell the story in the part about fraud of one particular meta-analysis on blood expanders. So the idea is that you give these blood expanders during surgery and it stops the patient from bleeding so much and saves their life. There were studies done by the anesthesiologist Joachim Bolt, who is, I think, the second most retracted scientist of all time now. These were fraudulent studies that looked like they showed that this particular blood expander worked in surgery and was a life-saving intervention. And so when his studies were meta-analyzed alongside all the other research, it looked like these blood expanders were great and really worked. But if you just meta-analyzed the studies that weren't by him, i.e. the ones that weren't false, the ones that were real, that were actually happened, the studies actually happened and weren't just made up, the blood expanders were dangerous. The blood expanders actually led to more deaths in surgery. So there's a really extreme example of how including in your meta-analysis results that are wrong 
that could have killed people. That could have had fatal consequences. Scientists are producing those meta-analyses, then doctors are reading them, and doctors are making clinical decisions on the basis of meta-analyses. They're meant to be the definitive answer to a question because they review all the possible research on that question, but they can be subject to bias. And so that's an extreme example of fraud. But if you think about putting in studies that are biased in various ways or just have faults, have flaws into the meta-analysis, if you put garbage in, you'll get garbage out. So meta-analyses are not immune at all to this problem, although they're sort of a step up from just a standard study. It's not like we can just put our faith into meta-analyses. Peer review is something that you've mentioned throughout the course of our conversation. It's also supposed to serve as a sort of safeguard with some of these current problems. Where does peer review fail as a preventative measure? I think there's various ways that it goes wrong. I mean, the number one thing to say is that peer reviewers are just scientists, just like everyone else. They are busy. They've got their own lab to run. They've got their own PhD students to supervise. They've got their own undergraduate students to teach. They've got all sorts of stuff going on. And that's just their working life. You know, they've got everything else going on too. And so sometimes, like the scientists who are writing the original papers, the peer reviewers can take their eye off the ball as well. They can give a cursory review. They can not notice some of the failings. And in a world where there's more and more and more and more scientific papers, reviewers have more and more and more on their plate, and it's just impossible the amount of time they can spend on any one paper and really checking it through, checking its numbers, checking its experimental design is going to be much less. So that's one problem. The other problem is that peer reviewers are often not given the original data on which a study is based. So they're often just taking the word of the original scientists who wrote the paper. They're just taking their word for it. They're trusting their statistical summaries from their papers that they've written. And it's quite weird when you think about that, because sometimes the data are actually shared later, but they're not shared at the point of peer review. So the peer reviewers can't really dig into the data and just check. Maybe even a very high effort peer review would be one where they actually try and rerun all the analyses of the paper just to check that it works. You know, if every peer reviewer did that, then we would catch an awful lot of errors and even you know fraudulent findings before they even get into the literature. Unfortunately, peer reviewers don't tend to do that. And then, you know, there's all the other issues of peer reviewers being biased in the same way that other scientists are. <laughs> They'll give a harsher review to a paper that goes against their own particular pet theory and maybe let a flawed paper that nevertheless supports their theory through with lesser criticism. So you have all these errors. You know, peer review is a human process too. And it may have been unwise to give all our scientific gatekeeping to the peer review system, at least in the state we're in currently. I mean, there are some suggestions in the book for ways that that might be improved, but it might have been unwise to rely quite so much on the peer review system to get us only the best quality science. Such a ridiculously frustrating cycle here. Despite that, you do a great job at the end of the book offering up some advice on how to read a scientific paper. Before we get into some of those details, I'm curious, as somebody who is interested in scientific research, just how important is it to see something like randomized or blind as part of a study? It's super important. And there are particular kinds of research that are essentially useless if the study has not been randomized. That is, say you're doing a drug trial and you want to compare the drug group to a control group, you want to make sure that people have been randomly assigned and that should even out any biases. So if they're not randomly assigned, then it could be the case that one group is maybe older than the other group or one group is healthier to start off with than the other group. And that's going to completely skew the findings of the study and make it essentially useless. It's really, really important that that randomization is used. And yet you would be surprised, although maybe not after reading the book, but the listeners might be surprised that that doesn't happen in a very large portion of papers. It's the same with blinding. 
when you're looking at a paper again on a you know an experiment a drug trial something of that nature and you find that it hasn't been blinded that is the experimenters knew which group the participants were in so they knew that these participants were in the group that got the real drug and these participants were in the group that got the placebo that's a really fertile ground for biases to creep in and to essentially render the experiment useless because you don't know whether the results are due to there being a real effect there or due to human biases so you want things to be blinded as much as possible Blinding can happen at the level of doing the statistical analysis, but it can also happen at the level of doing the experiment as well. You want people to be treated exactly the same, whether they're in the control group or the experimental group. So you don't want anyone who actually interacts with the participants in the experiment. And that includes if the participants are animals, not just humans. You don't want them to be acting differently, depending on whether they're in one group or the other. There's a paper by the neuroscientist Malcolm McLeod that went through loads of neuroscience studies and found that many, many of them just don't report whether there was blinding, whether there was randomization in the studies, which is really quite depressing because it's not just that they did it, but they forgot about it. Because if you do it, you will say, you make your study look good by saying, we did randomization here, we did blinding. But many, many studies don't even begin to mention it. So you can be pretty sure that it just didn't happen. Regarding some of those basics that you offer up on how to read a scientific paper, it includes things like losing your preconceived biases, try to find the full paper if you can, check the author and publication credentials, check for pre-registration and replication, determine if the study is well-designed, and you also offer the tip of checking the effect of research. What do you mean by checking the effect of the research? So this is like how important a finding it is really. If a drug is found to have just like a tiny, tiny, tiny effect on a disease, it might be statistically significant. It might be reliable. It might appear reliably each time the drug is used, but it might actually have only a very, very small effect. The next time you see a nutritional study where they say that eggs are related to heart disease, say, I mean, that was there was a paper on that recently. How much are they related to it? Scientists will often, they're so obsessed with the p-values and the statistical significance that we discussed just a few moments ago, that they will often just report things in terms of, well, we found a significant effect and therefore that's fine. But the p-value doesn't tell you how important the effect is. It just tells you whether in a world where there's nothing happening, you know, how likely is that effect going to have come up, you know, just due to noise. So what you want is a separate indicator of the effect size of a study. Like how big is the effect in the study? Is it the sort of thing where if you eat one egg, it's going to lead inevitably to heart disease? Or is it that it raises your risk by a tiny, tiny, tiny amount? And in some of the really big nutritional data sets we have now, it's very easy to find results that are statistically significant, but actually practically or clinically fairly meaningless. So a lot of the nutritional studies have that problem. It happens quite a lot in psychology as well. You know, you have to ask how much in a lot of cases. So like variable A is correlated with variable B. Yeah, how much is it correlated though? Is it a correlation that's just basically, you know, the tiniest little relation, which might be interesting to scientists, but it might not be interesting to those of us who want to make decisions on the basis of what do we eat? Which intervention are we using in our classroom with children? Whatever field you happen to be in, politicians making political decisions, you have to ask how big the effect is, not just whether it's statistically significant. Is there a good rule for determining causation versus correlation? This is a kind of active field of research where scientists are discovering new ways of making that inference. The classic way of doing it, obviously, is a randomized controlled trial. If something is a randomized controlled trial and it's done well and it's blinded and, you know, all the stuff we've been talking about, then you can make a causal 
conclusion from that because you've randomized people into one group and another group and then you've actually intervened where you've made one group take the drug and one group take the placebo or whatever the experiment is you've actually gone in and changed something a lot of studies are just correlational so it's very unlikely that you can do a randomized controlled trial on a lot of things you know what would a randomized controlled trial on the effect of going to school look like well you would have to randomize some children to not ever go to school (laughs) and so i don't think their parents are going to be very pleased with that So ethically, a lot of randomized controlled trials can't be done. So scientists have to kind of take a step back and do correlational research. On the other hand, though, there are ways, very clever ways of trying to derive a causal conclusion from correlational data. So you can do things like use what's called instrumental variables, which is very common in economics, where you rely on some kind of change in the world happening that almost creates a natural experiment. So, you know, to use the example that I just talked about of school there, sometimes governments change their schooling laws so that people are forced to stay in school for an extra year where they wouldn't otherwise have. So, you know, extending the compulsory schooling. And if you can show that that didn't happen because the kids were any particular way, it just happened because the government decided to do it, then that kind of becomes a natural experiment under some circumstances. And so you can use that kind of outward shock as a natural experiment. So that's a case where even if you've got a correlational data set, you can maybe compare the kids who were forced to stay in school for longer with the ones who didn't, the ones who weren't, you know, from previous years. So that's one way you can kind of do that. So people talk about natural experiments. When you're reading the paper, you can see, you know, this is a natural experiment. Okay. Given that we can't do a randomized controlled trial of everything, that's a decent shout. Another way is like what happened with lung cancer and tobacco is that, you know, we didn't do a randomized controlled trial of that. Again, ethically, that's not going to be good. You randomize some people in the group to be forced to smoke for the rest of their life. And (laughs) some people are forced never to smoke, but you can triangulate the evidence from lots of different types of studies. So all the evidence from lots of different independent research designs, research designs that are quite different, you know, lab designs, correlational studies, studies where you put cigarette tar on rats and see if they develop a tumor more often. These were all studies that were done, you know, back in the mid 20th century, which brought people to the conclusion that tobacco causes lung cancer, even though it's never been the case that a randomized controlled trial has been done on that. We're pretty sure that that's the case. So it still can be the case that you can draw a causal conclusion, but that's after a lot of work. When you're basing your conclusion on one study, which often, sadly, a lot of scientists do, you're probably on pretty shaky ground. Thank you very much for that. And last thing, Stuart, you've done a great job of pointing out some of the problems affecting scientific research in 2020. How is scientific research evolving in positive ways? I think there's lots of positive outgrowths of this whole problem that I'm talking about. So for the last 10 years or so, we've been in this replication crisis, as it's been called. People have realized that they can't replicate each other's work. So there's been a lot of soul searching, particularly in my own field of psychology, but that has kind of seeped out into other fields too, who have kind of realized that they've got the same sorts of problems. And, you know, I talk about in the book, a great deal of the problems come from the fact that the university system emphasizes just publishing papers rather than publishing true results, right? It's really well rewarded to get more lines on your CV by publishing research and publishing it in really prestigious, glamorous, flashy journals. And especially, as we mentioned right at the start, publishing positive results. That all might sound good, but actually what we really want is results that are accurate and reliable and robust, right? So we need to change the system in ways that encourage that. And so There are some encouraging developments where some journals now are explicitly saying that we're interested in publishing replication studies, which they never used to before. You know, they were always interested in just novelty. And in fact, some journals had explicit policies where they would just not publish a replication study because it wasn't novel and exciting enough. 
There are journals where there are new types of papers being published where your analysis is all planned out in advance. You know, I mentioned earlier on that scientists very rarely plan out their analysis from start to finish, but they just kind of run the research. They kind of do ad hoc analyses as they go along. And so that's one major problem in science. And so a lot of the journals are now changing so that they encourage you to register your analysis. And that's one really good thing. Universities are becoming slightly more aware of this. I mean, this is something which needs to change a lot more. But when you're promoting researchers, you're hiring researchers, you're giving researchers tenure in the US system, a lot of that is based on what they've published. And it could be more based on the broader contributions they've made to the scientific community. So have they shared their data? Have they produced tools that other people can use and shared them in the community? So being a good scientific citizen, there's a kind of push to reward more of that stuff rather than just looking at how many lines someone has on their CV, which is turns out to be not necessarily a great proxy for how reliable or replicable their research is. And then there's kind of this broader open science movement where scientists are becoming more comfortable with sharing their data with each other. It goes back to those Mertonian norms that we talked about right at the start, that scientists are becoming more communal in the sense that they're putting their data sets online for anyone to scrutinize. So they're basically saying, I've got nothing to hide. Please feel free to look through all my spreadsheets of data. They're being happier to share their methods with each other so that other people can replicate research. They're working together in larger teams so we can get higher quality studies. And this is all kind of in the early days and we're kind of working on technological fixes for this. I mean, when you want to make some change, you actually have to make it easy for people to make the change. And I think now is a really good moment for that because these days it's very easy to share a data set online. Whereas if you go back 10, 20 years, it's very, very difficult to share the raw data, especially in larger data sets. It's just not going to happen. Whereas nowadays, you can post your stuff online within moments and anyone can see it. So there are some reasons to think that this is a kind of really good turning point for improving the quality of research. Another reason is that we know a lot, all the research I discussed in the book, the kind of meta research, we know a lot more about what's going wrong so we can try and fix it. So I do have some level of optimism, although you go through the book and there's an awful lot of problems there. So we're only at the very start of trying to fix a lot of these issues. But now we know about them. That's a good deal of the battle. If only we could get to the Daily Mail to stop belligerently reporting scientific research that has little to no merit, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah there are some outlets that are doing a lot worse than others. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, <laughs> you know, we live in a clickbait world where people want to clickbait findings. And unfortunately, and one of the major points I make in the book is, a lot of scientists are willing to play up to that. And so we need to change the culture for scientists to essentially be more intellectually honest and say, look, I don't actually know if this is the case. I did this study and it was interesting, but it wasn't the final answer to the question. Being just more humble about the way we do research would be a big help. A hundred percent. Very well said. He is Stuart Ritchie, a faculty member at the Social Genetic and Developmental Psychiatry Center at King's College London and author of the excellent new book, Science Fictions, How Fraud, Bias, Negligence and Hype Undermine the Search for the Truth. You can get it now wherever books are sold. Stuart, thank you so much for the time today and thank you for this great book. Thanks so much for having me on.